Turn with me to John chapter 3 as we uh, continue our study through this gospel. We took a little bit of a break and we're back in John and uh, look at John chapter 3. Looking at verses 1 through 21. John 3, 1 through 21. Perhaps one of the uh, well-known verses in uh, the Bible for even unbelievers are found in uh, this actual section here. Of course, we are very familiar with John 3.16, uh, about uh, God loving the world that He gave His only Son. And also the theme of the new birth, you must be born again. That is also another uh, uh, truth that uh, even unbelievers know, apart from, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. These are some of those verses that people are very, very uh, familiar with. And here in in John, now we're going to see a little bit of a transition in uh, the gospel itself. Uh, From from here on, in the very uh, immediate uh, chapters, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, you're going to see first of many interviews that are to come. Here is uh, Jesus having an interview with uh, Nicodemus. And then when you get to chapter 4, the interview uh, or the interaction, if you will, with the Samaritan woman in in chapter 5, with the nobleman from uh, Capernaum and so forth. Um, you will find in all these three incidents, there were these one-on-one encounters. And it's, it's important for us to pay attention to these one-on-one encounters because that also helps us to understand about evangelism. Uh, a lot of times we think, you know, Jesus preached to the crowds and uh, people turned to him. And then that is true. We, we have those incidents also. But also if you pay close attention, you find Jesus giving attention to individuals. And here's one of those individuals Jesus uh, uh, gave his time to, and it's interesting, all these people, John 3, 4, and 5, are people who experienced a change in their lives after their personal encounter with Jesus. It's interesting, here you have Nicodemus, the cream of the society, and in John 4 you will find the woman with five husbands, and really, you know, she's down at the bottom there. But the common need for both was what? They both needed Jesus, and they both received Jesus. Unconditionally. Isn't that beautiful? Here you have, you know, this is the guy. In fact, in John 3 verse 10, Jesus says, you are the teacher. In fact, uh, not only were all the Pharisees teacher, it's very likely that Nicodemus was the teacher. Because the original goes by saying, like, you are the teacher. So here is the teacher who needs Jesus. And in John 4, you have an immoral woman who needs Jesus as well, and, and I trust that you know, as uh, these people came to Jesus, they never had a clue as to their real need. Jesus knew what they really needed, and He provided it for them, and they accepted it, and they were transformed. I really pray that this morning, if you are sitting here, not right with God, that by the time you leave this premise this morning, that you would be right with God. I really hope and pray. And for those who have had that genuine experience of being made right with God, I pray that you would give God all the glory for that and that you would long to share this message to every unbeliever that comes in your pathway. Every single one. doesn't matter how religious, how good they are. doesn't matter how immoral and how bad they are. Because we are the mouth of Jesus. We are the hands of Jesus. We are the feet of Jesus. You've been saved to serve. And part of that serving your neighbor is pointing them to Christ. So that's what we're going to be looking at. The subject is uh, 
the new birth. And we're going to look at six truths about the new birth in these 21 verses. Uh, hoping that we'll get through all the 21 verses. Uh, because about uh, three or four weeks ago, I was kind of, uh, uh, I wouldn't say challenged, but uh, reminded that, uh, you know, I've got to try and preach the whole counsel of God. So <laughs> i got to try and take longer passages, which I'm not uh, good at, but uh, it's been on my mind, so well, we'll see. If we do it, it's the Lord's will. If it's not, it's the Lord's will. Let's pray together, and then we'll uh, uh, look at the text, shall we? So, Father, as we uh, study this word together, this important um, chapter here, our prayer is that uh, just as Nicodemus had his uh, need met, I pray that any here this morning would have their greatest need met. Greatest need is not good health, not good wealth, not a great family, not a great uh, career, none of that. The greatest need of every single person in this universe is to be right with you. And I pray that need would be met because you have provided the basis for that need being met, your sacrifice on that cross. May you open people's hearts. And for those in whose life that need has been met, may we never ever wander far away from the cross. They've been saved. But you left us on earth with this commission. Be my witness. Help us to take this message with all its clarity to the lost person. Help us to understand the message clearly so that we can communicate it properly. For if we communicate half-truths, we are guilty of being false witnesses. We don't want to do that. Inform our minds. Activate our emotions and uh, conform our will to these truths so that we can be faithful and be your witness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We want to pick it up from verse uh, 23 of chapter 2 on because it, it kind of continues. Um, uh, you know, Jesus is in, still in Jerusalem. The, the background is, you know, the temple clearing was done and there was that one week of unleavened bread. He was doing a lot of uh, signs and miracles. And uh, it continues because uh, Nicodemus also, this encounter is happening in uh, Jerusalem, it's verse 23 says, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Meaning that there's a lot of signs that Jesus performed that are not recorded for us. Verse 23 makes it very clear. There's a lot of signs going on here. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. That really is like a hinge to chapter 3 verse 1. Jesus knew what was in each person's heart. Jesus knew that. That is why when he, when Nicodemus comes to him, it seems like Nicodemus' question and Jesus' answer were just not connected at all. It was because Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus' heart. Jesus knew what was inside of Nicodemus and Jesus was providing that for him. All these signs they've seen. And Nicodemus was one of those who would have seen all these signs. Because remember the first sign was in Cana. Nicodemus was not there. And the temple cleansing we saw was also a sign. But numerous other signs prompted Nicodemus to come to Jesus. And here's, here's the first truth from verses 1 through 3 about the new birth. It is an ab new birth is an absolute necessity to enter the kingdom of God. If you want to enter the kingdom of God for the Jew, this was what he was longing for. That the messianic kingdom that God would be setting, he needed. He knew he was going to be in that kingdom. But he thought he was going to be in that kingdom on his own understanding Jesus comes and shatters that says no, no, no. 
if you want to even see or enter the kingdom, you must be born again. You must have that new birth. Look first of all at verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the religious elite if you will. 71 people made up the Jewish council. They were like the leaders and he was one of those. A Pharisee, one who was following all the strict Jewish customs. If there was one from a religious standpoint who made it, that was Nicodemus. Someone who's probably like a pastor today. Someone who goes to church every day. Someone who preaches, teaches God's word. Someone who does it all. Let's say someone like a Pope. That probably would be a little more easier for us to identify. To someone like that, Jesus is going to give a stunning answer to his question. Notice first of all, what was his question? He came, and came to Jesus at night. Now there's been a lot of written about that. Saying that Nicodemus was a coward, that is why he came at night. Maybe, I'm not sure. It could also be that, you know, at night he could have a free conversation with Jesus, uninterrupted. It's also a possibility. I don't want to read too much into that, though it's repeated again in John 19.39 when John records that him and Joseph of Arimathea, when they come to take Jesus' body, it recalls that this was a Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. But whatever is it, he came to Jesus so he could have a good conversation with him. And notice this question, Rabbi, he recognizes Jesus as a teacher, even though Jesus did not have any formal rabbinic training. He says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. How does he know that? Because of this. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So there is something that Nicodemus understood about Jesus. Remember John 20, the purpose of John writing his gospel. These signs point to who? Jesus as being the Messiah. And by him, and by you having that understanding that he is the Messiah, you must put your faith in him. So the signs are to point to Jesus as the Messiah. The signs and miracles are not so much, so to speak, that you and I need to keep doing those. Because we really don't do them. The signs according to John 20 verses 30-31 are so that it proves that Jesus is who he claims to be and based on that we should put our belief in him for eternal life. So Nicodemus could understand quite a bit about that. This man is special. These signs point that he is coming. He's one who is sent from God. He's not even asking a question here in verse 2 if you really pay close attention. He's just making a statement. But going back to chapter 2 Verse 24 and 25, Jesus knew what was in man. So this is his response. Very truly I tell you. That phrase, very truly or truly, truly, in um, uh, other translations, basically says it's something that's very solemnly spoken. Meaning like, it's almost like I'm calling God as my witness. That's a very solemn statement. Very truly I tell you. No one, no exceptions, can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again or born from above. Flat out Jesus says this. Nicodemus, not you, not anyone, cannot even see. Later, same, the same idea, uh, again in verse 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God, so forth. We'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus makes it emphatic. You want to enter the kingdom of God? You, the, the Jew, the teacher, you have to be born again. It's a birth from above. Why? 
Why? Why? Why does Nicodemus need this birth? Why do you and I need this? Because of this. Let's just move a little out of John. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, if you're following along in the church Bible, it's page 1174. Ephesians 2, this is the state you and I are when we come into this world and you and I are apart from Jesus Christ, apart from our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's because we are dead in our sins. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, as for you, you were, he's talking to believers in their past, past tense, without Christ. Which is where, by the way, let me pause and say, you are, even now, if you don't have a relationship with Christ. You're dead in your sins, dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is the condition. Why do we need new birth? Because this is the condition we come into this world. Utterly separated from God, dead in our sins. Dead. We come into this world enemies of God. We don't come into this world as children of God. We look at a baby that is born. Look at the baby and we say, how cute, how beautiful that baby is. And physically speaking, that baby is cute and the baby is beautiful, no doubt about it. But, according to scriptures, that baby is a rebel against God. That baby, by its nature, is shaking its fist against a sovereign God who created it. That's how we come into this world, rebels. That's what Paul says here. You're, you're dead. Dead. And plus, it says you are under God's wrath. The last part of verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Because of our sinful nature, wages of sin is death, we come into this world condemned. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That's what the scriptures teach. You come dead in your transgressions. And that is why it is an absolute necessity to have that new life, to enter the kingdom of God. It is not about, you know, there's uh, about 10% missing in our life and we just need to add that 10%, either via baptism or via church membership or via reading a Bible or something along those lines. We're just missing the mark just a little. No. Bible is absolutely clear. We're separated from God, enemies of God, alienated, hostile to Him, shaking our fist and walking our own way, living in a way that we'd be very happy if God is dead. Just don't want Him to bother us. That's the condition we are without Christ. And that is the condition Nicodemus was in. It would have been a tremendous blow for Nicodemus to hear that he could not enter the kingdom of God. He could not enter the kingdom of God. It is like, again, picture like telling the Pope, you're shut out of the kingdom of God. Walking up to Vatican, to his throne, and telling him, you're dead in your sin. You need new life. That's what Jesus is doing here to Nicodemus. And that's what Jesus is confronting you and me as well absolute necessity. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize that apart from Christ you are dead? There's no degrees of death. You're dead. 
You're dead and you are deserving of God's wrath. Later, John will say the same thing. That you're under condemnation. Those who don't believe are already condemned. So you are sitting right here. In that fearful state, does that fear grip you? Picture it this way. There's a hot furnace. And you're being held on top of that furnace with a very thin string. A string that can snap any time. You're dangling. That's, that's your state without Christ. And you keep thinking about, someday I'll get right with Christ. When that string is weakening and weakening and weakening, it can snap any moment. You need that new birth. But how do we get this new birth? Verses 4 through 8 tells us, because it's a work accomplished by God Himself. It's not, a, it's not something that man conjured up. It's God Himself who provides this new birth for us. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus asked this question. Okay, you're telling me I need to be born again. I get it. I understand that part. But how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Is there a little bit of... Come on, Jesus. Ridicule there, perhaps. Perhaps. But he's, he's following along. He's, he's wrestling. He's asking, okay, I get the idea, but how is that possible? Because he's still thinking on fleshly terms. Because for the Jew... By the time Jesus comes along, it's salvation is by works. What can I do? How can I do this? I mean, can I just enter back into my mother's womb? He's still thinking along. Self-effort. Notice what Jesus says. Again, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, well, look, I'm talking about spiritual life. Human Procreation gives birth to another human being. Sinners give birth to sinners. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. Meaning we're talking about spiritual life here. Verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. But you cannot tell where it comes from. Or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. What Jesus is saying is this. Look Nicodemus. This is something that's spiritual in nature. Because it's a birth from above. You cannot understand all the details, but you should not be surprised that I'm saying this. Why? Why should Nicodemus not be surprised? Put yourself in Nicodemus' shoe. Here is an Israelite, the teacher of Israel, very familiar with the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying you should not be surprised. So there's got to be a connection here. If Nicodemus is an Old Testament teacher, thoroughly knowledgeable in the Old Testament scriptures, and Jesus is saying, you should not be surprised, which means this new birth is talked about in the Old Testament. We should not inject our understanding of the New Testament into Nicodemus' life, because Nicodemus did not have a New Testament. All he's got is the Old Testament. This is where people make a mistake. They say, well, Jesus is talking about baptism here. He could not be talking about baptism, because Christian baptism has not yet occurred. So what does this mean? Born of water and the Spirit and something that Nicodemus should not be surprised. There are several Old Testament passages we can talk about but I'm just going to draw you to just one. Just one. Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. It's page 865 in the Church Bible. Ezekiel is past Psalms. You get Isaiah, Jeremiah and so forth and you'll find Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel in chapter 36. This is God's promise to Israel. As he is dispersing them, he's saying, I'm going to bring you back, establish you into the kingdom. Again, notice the connection. Jesus has said, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom. And for the Jew, the kingdom was a big thing in mind. And Ezekiel 36, starting from verse 16, is about the restoration of Israel. So the kingdom concept is still there in the mind here. And notice verse 24. I'm going to pick it up from verse 24. For I will take you, that's Israel here, and of course it involves individual Jews, out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And here it comes. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. This is symbolic of sins being forgiven. Symbolic of sins being forgiven. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This was something that the Jew knew the Messiah would do. You remember when we were going through John 1, we went through all these passages in detail. So an Old Testament Jew would know when the Messiah comes and there would be many signs pointing to the Messiah and one of those was he would cleanse the nation and he would be bringing the spirit to the people. And that is what Jesus is saying. Nicodemus, you should know this. Jeremiah 31, there is that new covenant. Verses 31 through 34, which Hebrews 8 talks. You can look it up later on. Jesus is saying, you should know this. That the two phrases, born of water, back to John 3, is the point of being forgiven, cleansing. And the spirit is the aspect of the new life provided by the spirit. That's the connection. It cannot refer to water baptism. Because in this whole chapter, the idea of new birth comes as a result of believing, trusting. It's by faith, not by works. And it's interesting, Ezekiel 37, that famous chapter on dry bones, is giving life. So 36 and 37, when you take it together, is about being forgiven and given new life. And that's what Jesus has in mind when he's telling here, you must be born of the water and the spirit, because it's the spirit who gives life. That's the idea. And the New Testament writers connect the same thing. If you look at Ephesians and chapter 5, I know we saw last week, but typically when we talk about Ephesians 5, especially that portion of verses uh, uh, 25 and 26, we get caught up with the husband's role. But just notice one of those things in there in Ephesians 5, after saying, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look at verse 26. To make her holy... Page 1177, um, Church Bible. To make her holy, this is what Christ did. To make the church, that's you and I who are part of his body, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Do you see how the cleansing is connected to the word? It, this, is, this is the point. How does God work the new birth in us? First of all, by cleansing us, by forgiving, forgiving us of our sins. And that's done as the word comes into our life. The word is the cleansing agent. The spirit is the one who gives life. You must be forgiven first. Cleansing needs to be done. And that cleansing comes as a result of the word. As the spirit applies the word and imparts new life. Go over to Titus. Same idea. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Now obviously Nicodemus would not have understood all this. But we living on this side get the whole picture clearly. Look at Titus chapter 3. 
And again, verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, verse 5. God saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life, etc., etc. But notice that verse 5, that washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, again that cleansing. Folks, when Jesus says in John 3, 5, He is not talking about water baptism. He is talking about us being forgiven, being made clean. In fact, in the same gospel in John chapter 15, Jesus would say the same thing in verse 3, that night, now keep in mind, in John 15 and uh, verse 3, notice what he's saying here. Judas is already gone and uh, 14, sorry, John 15 verse 3, notice what he says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. It's the word that's the cleansing agent as applied by the Holy Spirit. So, John 3 verse 5, how does God accomplish that new birth in us? Through the word of God as applied by the spirit of God. We give the word to people. That's what evangelism is about. You give the word to people, get out of the way. The Holy Spirit uses the word that he authored and produces conviction in the hearts of the people, causes them to repent of their sins and then to have new life. It's a work accomplished by God. It's a word accomplished by God. So it's a work accomplished by God through His Word and His Spirit. Third truth here. Now someone could say, well, wait a minute. So man is passive in this whole process. Hey, if I need to be right with God, let God do it all. People can say that. And that is why verses 9 through 18 says, not only is it a work accomplished by God through His Word and Spirit, but it involves human belief. It involves human belief. Let's continue reading here from verse 9 on. So Jesus said, Nicodemus, this is a spiritual truth, it's a spiritual reality, it has to happen from above. Earlier in John 1.13, Jesus, I mean John already said, it's a new birth, people who are born of God, born from above, not because of the desire of the will or the will of the flesh or uh, uh, human passions or anything, it's accomplished by God, but it does involve human role here. Verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can this be? How can this be? Jesus, look at Jesus' response, verse 10, you are Israel's teacher. The, the, the language is kind of a little more, uh, you are the teacher, that's what he's saying. Like we say, you're the man. Come on, you have all the answers. We tell people, you're, you're, you're the man. That's what Jesus is saying. You are the teacher. And do you not understand these things? You ought to know. Because if Jesus is saying, don't you understand these things, that means these realities were rooted in the Old Testament. But they were blind. They weren't seeing it. Then he goes on to say, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Who's the we here? Some say it's the Father, Son and the Spirit. Some say it's Jesus with all the Old Testament prophets, including John the Baptist. I tend to take that. that all of God's people, prophets, including myself now, we talk to you about these things, but you're not accepting it. You're not believing. I've spoken to you of earthly things. 
and you do not believe. Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus's heart. Nicodemus still not believed. This new birth is an earthly reality. You don't want to believe that. Then how will you how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? How are you going to understand or believe if I talk about kingdom realities and so forth? He is actually chiding Nicodemus for his unbelief. Then he says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. That's the title Jesus uses for himself. Often, again, pulled from Daniel 7, 13 and 14 of the Messiah. And then he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. But then notice from verses 15 through 18, how many times the word believe comes. So that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. And verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Again, here it talks about human responsibility. Puts clear focus on the human side. Yes, through His Word and His Spirit, God accomplished the new birth, but not independent or apart from human responsibility. Because the call here is, whoever believes, whoever believes, you don't believe, you're condemned, you believe, you're justified. He puts a clear responsibility here. Later in John 8, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you are unwilling to come to me, placing the responsibility on human rejection. None in hell can say, God put me here. And none in heaven can say, I put myself here either. Okay? There are two tracks. The train, as I've often said, don't try to reconcile them. You'll end up destroying one truth or the other. Leave them side by side. If you are saved here, give all thanks and glory to God. If you're sitting here rejecting Jesus Christ, you and you alone are accountable. And when you go out to people and proclaim the gospel, tell them, call them to repent. Unashamedly, boldly, tell them to turn from their sins and turn to Christ. And then when you come, get down on your knees and when you pray, tell God, unashamedly, God, that's a dead person. They cannot turn on their own. You must open their eyes. Plead with people to come to God. Plead with God for people to come to Him. It's as simple as that. That's as simple as that. And you are safe when you do that because the Bible supports you clearly in that. Problem is when we start trying to connect all the loose ends. Don't. Don't. You will destroy one or if not both. So the responsibility is clearly stated but the interesting thing is this. Even that belief is a gift. Did you know that? <laughs> even that belief is a gift. Let me prove to you. You people want a Bible verse to support everything. you know. So Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, that very famous, uh, James had it on the slide earlier in one of the songs. There. Look at Ephesians 2, verses, uh, the very familiar verses 8 and 9, uh, page 1174, a church Bible. Again, notice what it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That phrase, it is the gift of God, does not just talk about only saving, but also for the faith. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. That's why we cannot boast. That's why we cannot say, oh, I got smart and I put my faith in Christ. Seriously? Left to your own wisdom, you'll continue to shake your fist against God. And 
another passage, this brings us down even more clear, the very next book is Philippians, Philippians 1 and verse 29, this makes it very clear, even the faith that we possess is a gift, and what a beautiful gift it is, look at verse 29, by the way this is more than, look, no notice the gifts God gives to us, not just faith, but my focus is going to be on faith, for it has been granted to you, because the Philippian church is going through some persecution, so Paul is saying, I want you to stand united, that's the context here, don't give up, stay united, keep fighting the fight. Why? For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, just pause right there, not only to believe. So what does that part say? It's been given to you by God, this faith to believe in Him. It's a gift. Faith is a gift. But not only is faith a gift. We like the first part, but we will not like the second part. What's the second part? <laughs> but also to suffer for Him. Folks, that's what the text says. Suffering is a gift given by God. I can almost tell you 90% of churches in Windsor will not approve of that teaching. It's not just Windsor. 90% of churches in India, in the world. Because this is contrary to what I like to hear. But God is not sitting in heaven and saying, I just want to make sure you're in agreement with my word. He says, no, 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 this is, this is the way it's going to be. Not only, it's a, it's, it, the text is clear, it's a gift. It's, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, because the Holy Spirit knows, we'll only take that part, not only, but also to suffer for Him. Suffer for Christ. Living the Christian life will bring suffering. But you're not alone, you're never alone. But I deviate. Point is, faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. So yes, new birth is an absolute necessity to enter the kingdom of God. It's a work accomplished by God Himself through His Word and His Spirit and also through human belief. But at the end of the day, even that human belief is a gift from God. That should what make believers grow in humility greater and greater. And I have said this, and probably like a broken record, true Christian growth is a downward growth. The more downward you grow, that's when you're really growing in your Christian life. Because this grace of God just humbles us, crushes us. He says, why me? Why would you have to do all this for me? God says, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. So ask God to help you believe if you're still sitting here far away from God. Ask God, God, help me, Lord. Help me. He will give you that faith. He will give you that repentance. He will open your eyes. That is a cry if you sincerely mean it. No, no strings attached. God, save me. I'm a rebel. I've rebelled against you. Save me. Do whatever you choose to do with my life. You make that a sincere cry. I guarantee you, you will experience that new birth. But if you say, I don't know God, I'm afraid. So if you save me, are you going to do this for me? Are you going to fix my marriage? Are you going to fix my career? Are you going to fix my health? None of that. God will not respond to that. It's only one way you come to Him. Total surrender. Total surrender. And on what basis, going on to fourth truth here, what basis can God provide this new birth? Just like that? Well, if He chose to, He could have done that, but then that would compromise His holiness because sin issue is still not dealt with. See, we saw God doing the salvation work. He uses human beings and all that, but on what basis can God be right in giving us this new birth? It's on this basis. 
Christ's sacrifice. That's the ground of God. That's the basis on which God says, I can produce a new birth in you. I can give you salvation as a free gift because of my son's sacrifice. Going back to verses 14 and following. Notice what it says here. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Let's, let's just pause and go back. What's this Moses being lifted up? Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, and you, you, you'll definitely need to turn there so that you kind of get the understanding here. Numbers 21, page 155. In Numbers 21, there's an incident. The Israelites are in the wilderness, and they're getting, they're on their way to uh, the promised land, out of Egypt, but not into uh, Canaan yet. And what is happening here is, verses um, 4 and 5, they're grumbling and complaining. So what's new? Right? Uh, they travel from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. Notice that. Impatience leads to what? They spoke against God and against Moses saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. What God gave to them was detestable to them. They were grumbling and complaining. By the way, as a side note, when you grumble and complain, this is exactly what we do. You want to know the response? I tell him, thank God, God does not do it exactly the way he did it there. But just so that you understand, this is how God feels. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Boy, that's a pretty serious. This is how God takes grumbling and complaining. No wonder Paul says in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling and complaining. And in everything give thanks. That's the battle. When I'm giving thanks in everything, I'm not going to grumble and complain. If I'm grumbling and complaining, I'm not giving thanks in everything. So these people are grumbling and complaining. God sent poisonous snakes. Bit the people. Many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord. They got the point. They spoke against the Lord. And then against you, Moses. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses, so Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It's, it's kind of bizarre, you know. Uh, snake kills you and you put the snake on the pole and then Jesus being compared to a snake. It's kind of, sounds like bizarre. But the point is this. On that cross, Jesus became that sin offering for us. Right? He did not become a sinner. Our sin were put on him. He was treated as though we committed, as though he committed our sins. What Jesus is drawing is this. People were bitten by the snake. You know, when you get bitten of a snake, you don't die immediately. Your, your body goes into an intense heat. Coming from India, we know how those things work. Sometimes people can suffer for a good amount of time. It's really your body is in fire. So there's a little time for people during that period. During that period, if they would just look up at that. And that requires faith. Because why would you look at a snake that just bit you? It seems... What's the word I'm looking for? It just seems weird, crazy, whatever you want to say. Does that sound sensible? But by faith they have to do that. Are they going to take God at His word? That's the key issue there. And those who did take God at His word looked and it says they were healed. And those who did not, 
died. Now imagine the hardness of the heart of the people there. Let's say there's 10 people being bit, 10 are suffering. And maybe two or three by faith looked up there and they're made whole and they got up, they're walking around. The other seven are seeing that this is a vivid picture that faith works. Still they would not look. You see how hard the human heart can be? You say, how could they do that? But you're doing the same thing if you're sitting here away from God. You see people around you whom God has touched. You see changes in their lives. You see what God has done something in them, but you don't want it. You don't want it God's way. You're fighting and fighting and fighting against God. That's what these people were doing. They fought and fought and they died. That snake poison filled them and they died. And Jesus says, those who looked had life by faith so that same way, everyone who believes because I'm going to be lifted up too. It's a picture of his crucifixion and resurrection exaltation. Look to the cross, he says. Just look to the cross. Turn away from your own way of thinking, your own lifestyle. Just look. The, the, the belief is just not just an intellectual thing. Even demons believe. It's a wholehearted trust. Turn from my way of thinking. Turning from my way of rebelling against God and looking to him by faith, believing that he will heal me. He will heal me. And then comes that marvelous verse. Everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Why does God provide this sacrifice? Because of this for. For God so loved the world. That word so loved. It gives us the kind of this emotional feeling. But that's not really the way the word so should be trusted. And should be translated. The, the Holman and the latest version of the NLT kind of gets that a little better. Uh, the ESV has it as a footnote. It's, the actual way to render that would be God loved the world in this way. This is how so he loved. How? This way. That he gave his one and only son. The word begotten means one and only. Unique. Someone who is different from others. When you become a child of God, you are a son of God as well. But there's a different... Jesus is a different son of God. Not like you and me. He gave his one and only son that again, whoever, irrespective of your color, irrespective of how much you've sinned, doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's a promise given by God. This shows God's love. And some people say the world there is the world of believers. I don't agree with that. Because later the world refers even though the world hated him. So it's not just for the Jews, for all kinds of people Jesus came. All kinds of people to bear their sins. He comes. That's, that's proof of God's love. A love that gives. Agape love. Love that's not just in words only, but in deeds also. It's a love that gave. And the Son gave Himself too. Verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. How is the new birth possible? Because the steadfast love of God. Cross. Cross. Anytime you tend to doubt God's love, when things go bad in your life, the only solution is keep looking to the cross. Keep looking to the cross. You doubt God's love, look to the cross. When things don't, make this, uh, uh, things don't seem to make any sense, look to the cross. That is an absolute fact. Jesus died on the cross. That's an absolute fact. We don't need to have all our questions answered to enjoy peace of God. 
In fact, faith thrives when there are no answers to our questions. Because if I have all answers to my questions, do I really need faith? I have a fact. The cross is a fact. God loves me is a fact as it's proved on the cross. So it's made possible. This way God does not have to compromise His holiness and at the same time, God does not have to compromise His love as well. Fifth truth about the new birth, verses 18 through 20. Why do we need the new birth? It's the only way to escape from God's condemnation. That's the only way. Going back again, not just to enter the kingdom of God, but to escape condemnation. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already or is sitting condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The ultimate sin that divides all mankind is unbelief. That's it. Rejection of Jesus Christ. And you don't need to become condemned. You are condemned already because as I said earlier, we come into this world as sinners under the judgment of God. This is the verdict, verse 19. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness. Again, this talks about a human choice, human willingness. People loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. They don't want to come. This places again human responsibility there. Why do you not want to come to Christ? Because you don't want to come to Christ. Because you love your sin. At the end of the day, we cannot pat ourselves on our back saying, you know what, I don't want to come to Christ because I'm so sinful. That's wrong thinking. You need Christ. You cannot say, I'll clean up my life and then come to Christ. That's wrong thinking. You got to come now. Because trying to clean up your life and then come to Christ is again self-effort. And that says the cross does not do it all. That's blasphemy. Don't sugarcoat anything. If you're not coming to Christ today, it's because of this. You love your sin. You love darkness. You're saying, my will be done, God. And you know what's the consequence if you continue to stay in that? On judgment day, God will say, wages of sin is death. You wanted your will be to be done, your will be done, as he will cast you into hell. So that is why it becomes important. Today, right now, you've got to humble yourself. If you're not, you're under condemnation. Willful human rebellion, verse 20 will not come. Notice that. They will not come into the light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. Folks, it's better to have your deeds exposed now and covered under the blood of Christ or have them exposed for all eternity. Don't delay. Come. And lastly, if you say you've come, new birth will always be evidenced by a changed life. Look at, go back to verse 8 for a moment. Notice what it says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What's the picture here? Just let's take the earthly picture here. You know when a tornado passes by, when that wind blows by. You cannot see the wind, but how do you know it passed by? Destruction. There's something that happens, or when you see the leaves move, you know there's a wind passing by. You don't have to see it, but you know it's passed by because of the evidence the same way, if we've experienced new birth, then there will be an evidence. Look at verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. These are those who've experienced that new birth, in whom God has done that work. 
and they live, they live by the truth so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God or that God has caused that to be done in them. Meaning, there is a changed life. So if you say, I've experienced a new birth, is there really a change in your life? Do you really hate sin? Because in the immediate context, people who refuse to come to Christ is because they love their sin. So if I pull it right from that, if you have a new birth, then one of the characteristics is you must hate your sin. I'm not saying you will never sin, but when you sin, do you hate that sin? Do you feel it's grieved God? Do you hate your sin because you're afraid of the consequences? Or do you hate sin because of what it has done to a holy God? It should be what it's done to a holy God. This God gives His Son to us. And for that very sin that He was put on that cross, we commit that sin. How can we cherish that sin? We can't. So there should be a desire in us. I want to live holy. There will be evidence of that. So that's, that's the evidence. We don't want to be deceived into thinking that we're saved when we're not saved and there's no transformation in our lives. Nicodemus, religious man, he needed new birth. So do you, so do I, if we've never experienced that. But if we have, we owe it to God. God has done this work. And we owe it to others to tell this truth about the new birth to everyone who comes across our way. Just give the word. Let the Holy Spirit work and just pray. Even if you don't see results, that's okay. Results are not in your hands. Salvation is the work of the Lord. But faithfully keep planting. Faithfully keep praying. Maybe it's your family that's not saved. Maybe it's your children that's not saved. Maybe it's your co-worker. Maybe it's your parents, your uncles, aunts, grandparents. Keep on plodding. I like that word plodding. It's an old term. A plodder. A plodder was one who kept on going. Kept on going. Keep on going. Keep on going. Don't give up. Don't give up. And if you're still far away from God, a few minutes will be reminded from the table of the Lord giving Himself for you and me. So, please, accept Him. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for this wonderful portion of Scripture reminding us the necessity of the new birth. And also reminding us that this work that's accomplished by you through your word and spirit, but it also involves our human response, human belief, which again, Lord, you grant that to us also. Thank you for Christ's sacrifice that is the basis of through which you can provide this new birth to us. Again, reminding us, Lord, that we stand condemned apart from relationship with you and if we have accepted you there must be a change I pray Lord work these truths in our hearts and cause us to love you and honor you by submitting to your truth draw anyone here this morning who is far away from you in Jesus name we pray Amen